Fanfic Retrospective, the podcast where we dredge up old fanfiction and expose it to the cold, harsh light of 2021. My name is Amato, he, him, and with me are... Tori, they, them, and... Taryn, he, him. Yep, thanks for coming back on, Taryn. Our most famous and beloved guest. Was that, <laughs> that Drew? I have no idea. Probably not. Do you have stats? Other than CJ. <laughs> I'm I'm willing to believe in you that believes in me, Amato. There you go. Um that's that's that one show. It's that that show. <laughs> the one it's with Kamina that I've Gurren Logan. Gurren Logan. Oh, right. Yeah. I, I loved we, that when it came out. <laughs> we watched that as part of um as part of anime club in college that, you know, I would come and we'd watch episodes of things all together, that kind of thing. And really early on, there's that one episode that's so bad. It's so horribly animated and also mm-hmm. uninteresting. Episode and, four. Yeah. And for... I was like, what, what happened yeah. to this show? And then someone explained to me that someone had lost their job over that episode. And I was like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's just that one episode. That's really bad. <laughs> yeah. So weird. Yeah. People complain about the animation in a lot of modern shows, too, and I just, I'm always confused as to, like, where the quality control is. Like, are they rushing these things out, like, a week ahead of time? I, don't, I just don't get it. <laughs> well, I think we're already in the right crotchety old person vibe to talk about old things exclusively on this podcast. And visual things. And visual things, right. Yeah, we're doing another comic today. Uh, I mean, I think we made it work last time. The last webcomic we did was um, was the Rescue Rangers one, right? Yeah. And, but admittedly, we had a lot of, like, kind of raving about the well-done cartooning in that. This is going to be a little bit different. <laughs> I suppose so. Uh, yeah, so we're talking about 8-Bit Theater today. And 8-Bit Theater was definitely a feature of our early-ish internet experiences, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mine for sure. Um, I know Amato's as well. I can't remember if one of us turned it on to the other, but... Oh, I mean, probably. Know. Who knows? It was really popular, though, you know? Yeah. It was one of, like, five or six that, like, kind of ballooned, I think, in right around 2000. Yeah, it was the the most popular sprite comic, I think. I just looked into it, and mm-hmm. it certainly wasn't the first sprite-based webcomic. But I think it was probably the most successful one ever. It's, like, kind of around... Maybe it was the first first, but, like, this was where webcomics, even having the internet and putting comics on the web in a serialized (laughs) format was completely new. Like, I remember being like, oh, yeah, I was really into webcomics. You know, I had all those ones saved on my browser list. Like, I checked this one every day. And it was like a thing to be into a comic on the web, right? Well, there's older successful web comics than that, but um, I mean, there's Sluggy Freelance. I think that's older. There's um, that one where they talk about Unix a lot earlier on, but his name I'm forgetting. <laughs> but yeah, oh, yeah, I feel like definitely part of the boom. Yeah, and the weird thing is like, even the the ones that are older than it are only like a couple years older, and now it's been like twenty years. So like the difference right. seems so so small now. Right. Yeah. In the history of the internet. Yeah. 
It so, started in 2001, which is like, that's pretty early for just general humans having access to the internet in their homes sort of stuff, right? <laughs> is it? Well, no, I guess I meant more like everybody uses the internet in communities and there are search engines now and stuff, but mm-hmm. whatever. <laughs> I have no idea how we actually found anything on the internet back in the day. I guess there were kind <laughs> of search engines, right? Yeah, there were like... There are a couple. There's like Yahoo and uh, oh. Ask Jeeves, and um, I never asked Jeeves. <laughs> but I think I think what people did is they literally typed in the URLs for yeah. everything. Yeah. Which now sounds crazy. You had to but... have like I remember. Well, I was only like ten when we got the internet in 1999, but like you had you had to find out from like an advertisement. Like I knew the Cartoon Network website because they advertised on their channel. Or like a friend told you the URL for this website. Mm-hmm. Oh, and for all the Gen Zs listening, this was back when if you typed in a URL, it wouldn't like give you suggestions. You had to literally type in the exact right URL every time. Including um, so... the uh, HTTP colon double backslash. Yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, crotchety factor five. Moving yeah. on. Oh, and the other very old webcomic that was fairly big, whose name I forgot, was user-friendly, by the way. I just looked that up. Anyway, um, yeah, I guess we should talk about our experiences with this. I guess first I should say, we're talking about 8-Bit Theater because it's a Final Fantasy fanfic webcomic. And by Final Fantasy, I mean the original Final Fantasy for the NES. Um, and that was but... Final Fantasy. Was that Final Fantasy 3? No, that was Final Fantasy. The one that's supposed to be the last hurrah of Square. Okay. I know there was a jump because two weren't released here in America, right? At some point? Well, yeah, they released one, four, and six as one, two, and three. Ah. Oh. Yeah, I was confused about that too because I forgot if one was one, basically. One was one. One was one. All right. So, did... 8-Bit Theater used the sprites. They must have made their own sprites, right? In image of it? Or did they... Because they couldn't have taken them from the game. That was a stupid question. It was on the NES. It wasn't like a computer game. At some point or other, there were rips for all of the sprites from all these old games that people did from ROMs or whatever. But yeah, I mean, it uses the sprites from Final Fantasy 1 and 2 and 3 and apparently like the first Fire Emblem game, maybe you know, for various purposes. Uh, but, you know, if you've, if you've actually played Final Fantasy, the original, then, like, a lot of the main characters and settings and a lot of the sprites are pretty familiar. And so now I have never actually played the original Final Fantasy, which seems like an oversight for reading this fanfic and potentially for having any sort of gamer cred whatsoever. Um, even right now I'm playing Final Fantasy fourteen which literally references characters from Final Fantasy 1 because it's all crossovery. But, like, I have never played Final Fantasy. I've played, like, five or seven other Final Fantasy games, but not that one. I don't think I ever properly played it, but what I did have as a kid was the strategy guide, the same one that Black Mage is reading in, like, you know, the third strip or something, which comes back as a brick joke, like, at the very, very end of the comic. 
Um, and I think copies of that were floating around because like it had come with an issue of Nintendo Power really, really early on in Nintendo Power's lifespan. Because they were really trying to push Final Fantasy. They were like, here's the strategy guide too. Something like that. Hmm. And so I was kind of familiar with the game, even not having played it. I think I probably tried to play it once and I was like, nope, this is too hard. I'm not doing it. <laughs> I remember I remember back when strategy guides were like the only way to get any in sort of information about a game because you couldn't just look things up. Um, so file that away for crotchety level increases later. Yeah, I don't even know. When I was first had an NES, well, I mean, we had it in my house before I was even born, but... I was playing it when I was really little. I don't even think there were that many strategy guys that existed back then. We never got Final Fantasy. Um, we just had like Zelda and Mario and some other stuff, but I didn't even get into it until the PlayStation. So <laughs> never played the first one. Yeah, the first one's really interesting because, and uh, okay, I guess we should get into the, the content of the comic actually before I talk about this connection. Um, but let's let's talk about the comic a little bit. 8-Bit Theater, it was created by Brian Clevenger, apparently launched in March 20, 2001, so it is literally 20 years old, or, you know, 20 and a half at this point when we're recording, and it ended nine years later in 2010, and it seems like it pretty much just trucked along pretty consistently throughout all that time, as far as I can tell. And um, it, it was popular enough that I think Brian Clevenger was able to leverage it to get work writing for other things. Or, you know, to be able to, like, write his own original comic and, and you know, sell it and such. Tori, have you read any Atomic Robo? No, I haven't. Um, though you just told me that was good. I just didn't really have an assumption, any assumptions or knowledge about it. I mean, I've heard of it. I just didn't know. I don't know. Anyway, I haven't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is good. It's, it's, like, got some kind of, you know, superhero adventure man motif type things. But it's also got interesting, like throughout the things happening throughout the lifespan of the immortal protagonists and so each one tends to be set in like a different decade even hmm. and has a lot of fun stuff going on i feel like um and, and by immortal i mean he's a robot not like you know not like he can't die but it, it feels like 8-bit theater is like those web comics where the person starts off drawing them and they're drawing is really really shaky and by the end of the webcomic they're actually really good at drawing it feels <laughs> like 8-bit theater is that but for writing for brian clevenger hmm. i can i can totally feel that because um so it started it starts out a little rough for me but by the time i finished reading what i read for today um, no this is actually pretty good like i would i would probably buy this if it wasn't too expensive you know now there's like 1200 or so pages um <laughs> of the webcomic tarin and you were saying before the show you were kind of marking when you thought it started getting good at what mark was that um right so i read 500 um pages of the comic and the point where I would say that it started to be solidly good, like every like panel of every page seemed to fit and seemed to flow and like was enjoyable to read was 439, mm -hmm. which means I got about 62 pages of good writing, like solidly good writing. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I don't blame Brian. You know, he, he put this out for free. I probably shouldn't use his first name, Mr. Clevenger. Um, but are we on a first name basis with Brian Clevenger? Is the question. <laughs> well, probably not after you know. this episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did mark that at comic. Uh, he called. He, he refers to them as episodes, which seems solid. By episode two hundred and eighty-eight, um, I said, "Seems like he's figured it out." Because before then, like. I, I, I wouldn't have probably read them on purpose. Though at the time, I did originally read this comic when it was coming out. And at the time, I thought they were pretty pretty good. Um, and the guest comics make me think that Mr. Clevenger's work are even better. Like, in, you know, relatively. Um, no. This makes it sound like I think this is not a good comic, which I, I don't think... I don't not think I think it's pretty good for a, a webcomic of its time. It's something. I mean, l- like you said, I was really into it when it was coming out too. And I don't know if I read it straight through, but I definitely did read all of it at some point. I think when I raised the idea of reading this, both Tori and Dom were like, 8-bit theater ended. And I was like, oh yeah, like it, it actually reached its story conclusion. <laughs> um, and I, I had read that conclusion back in the day. Actually, at the... <laughs> It's kind of funny because at the point where I said, oh, like in my notes, this is solidly good now. It was like five comics after I gave up the first time, like when I was reading it as like it came out because it had gotten to the point where um, at one point the comic starts getting way more interludes and like guest strips. And he's he sort of just, he doesn't update. He didn't update as frequently as he had before which I think is sort of a death knell for a lot of comics, uh, web comics at least. Um, but but yeah, like I stopped reading it like literally right before I, I would now think it got good, which is unfortunate, but it also might be related. Like maybe something happened, like something was happening in his life where he was like, oh, I'm starting to get like attention. I'm starting to get really good critical feedback. I'm taking this really seriously as a career or something. I, I don't know what the background is, but. Something like that, maybe. Hmm. Well, let's orient ourselves and the readers about 8-bit theater and Final Fantasy. The plot of the original Final Fantasy is that you are four light warriors, and you get to choose their classes. Um, And you have these orbs, and each is an elemental orb, because this is Final Fantasy. And you need to go defeat the four fiends to light back up your orbs to save the world. And the... I mean, there's there's various notable things about it, but it's not a plot-heavy game. One of the few things that is notable about the plot is the presence of a time loop, which is very... Like, I mean, it's a very JRPG thing to have, but you don't really expect it in a game as old as Final Fantasy, where it's like you beat Garland really early in the game, and then later on it's like, oh... Garland sent the fiends back into the past, so no, so that like he protected his conscious. I don't know. He like sends himself back into the past, so the fiends can send him back into the future, so he can pull the fiends from the past or something like that, and so he can never die except that then you just kill him harder, and he does. <laughs> Could this be the trope namer for for the JRPG time loop thing? I don't know. I hmm. mean, I, I have no idea what that history is. Yeah. <laughs> I was just thinking about that. 
It was definitely early and influential, though. Yeah, like, I was just thinking about that with this this whole comic, like, just its early and influentialness in general. Like, looking back on it now, I'm, I, was, I started reading it, and I was sort of like, oh, well, this is a little bit cliche and redundant, and the humor's not super smart, at least at first. I will say mm-hmm. that, like, I... When I got to the, I didn't get all the way to the end, but what I I skipped the end and I thought it was actually getting really clever at that point. But um, at the time when I remember it was coming out, I'd never seen anything like this that was using video game sprites and was making fun of those tropes in games. And it did a lot of things sort of seminally. I think I've just seen it so many times now, but this might be one of the early iterations of those types of jokes, which when I was, you know, 12, 13, 14, were hilarious. What kind of jokes are we talking about here, Tori? We should probably kind of talk about this oh, yeah. the comic. Let's, yeah, let's just do that. We'll talk about the comic. Um, well, okay, so, so I mean, we, we get characters that are, you know, from the classes that you can choose in the game, like, you know, our main party, very, like, we start off with Black Mage and Fighter as characters, and very shortly they're joined by uh, Thief and Red Mage and white mage and black belt are around and those are the six classes you can choose from in the game and like for a while they're kind of like the main characters though black belt is less important than any of the other five i would say in the comic um though secretly he's he's also mvp but like we'll talk (laughs) about that later sure and the game i mean the, the comic it proceeds more or less along the plot of the game except everything's ballooned out in terms of way 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 more detail it, like it grinds along things are making forward progress in a sort but it takes them like you know 20 yeah. times as long to do anything <laughs> as i could possibly make it take them if i was writing an adaptation of final fantasy yeah i think that's right like um i think literally the, the comic style is that they basically sit in a, in a location for about 20 to tw- to 30 like um episodes like comic strips um basically dealing with a particular like issue and mostly it's dialogue like they're just talking to each other about like a plan like a terrible plan or like even something totally random and obscure like um nunchucks or their derivations uh, like literally for like 20, 20 comic strips. These are not like a Dilbert, like three panel, four panel comic strip. These are full page comic strips of dialogue between these, these characters. Very dense. Yeah. But overall, the, like the humor style of it is basically that they say or do what each other would call stupid things um, and then call each other out on it constantly for hundreds and hundreds of pages. Um, and I think that might be to- what Tori was referencing because like, as far as I can tell, like the original Final Fantasy game, you don't have a lot of like interpersonal like dialogue between these monolithic classes or jobs or whatever you want to call them of characters, but like, you know. They're just, you can kind of, you can, like, you can fill in the gaps of of each. You can basically put whatever personalities you want of them. And what Mr. Clevenger decided to do was to make them all either, like, psychotic, which might not be the right term for that, like, 
kill happy or um, very ignorant. What's, I guess some some of the humor also, Tarn sort of made reference to this that I was, I was referencing is like, so you've got um, Red Mage, who is a self-described min-maxer. And that's like something you didn't see a lot of just jokes about like in media at the time, right? And that's what makes it kind of funny because it's like something you know about in your little nerdy geek bubble, but here's a comic that's actually calling attention to it. And the other thing, the reason when I, I started rereading this and I didn't remember a lot of it, um, that I wasn't very like invested is it, you know, I, I think I said it seems a little like plotting and the jokes seem redundant. However, having skipped to the end and realizing that it does do, as Amato said, the whole plot of the game, eventually, I'm like, was this the intention all along? Like, I'm really curious if, like, in Clevenger's head, he was like, I'm going to do the whole plot, even if it takes me, what, 10 years and a thousand strips. <laughs> but he did do it. And, like, I'm just going to give him some praise for doing that in and of itself. Yeah, it's impressive he was just able to do it. I agree. Um, yeah, Tori, you mentioned uh, Red Mage being a min-maxer, and we're talking about that in the tabletop role-playing game sense. And I want to touch in on that for a couple of reasons. One being that the original Final Fantasy is really D&D influenced, like really heavily in a way that no other Final Fantasy game afterwards ever was when they were making their own franchise. And so you've got, you've got elithids and like neroliths and beholders around as random encounters. You have the wizards having spell slots that they have to use, you know, including like first, second, third, fourth, whatever level spells as like their system mechanic, like all that kind of thing and probably other stuff that I'm forgetting, you can just really see the Dungeons and Dragons in it. And so it, it feels, you know, a lot more natural to like throw in all of the, oh, well, not to mention that it's like, it's really a fantasy setting, unlike a lot of, unlike some Final Fantasies, which try to do more like, I guess later Final Fantasies really go away from the medieval setting, right? By the time you get to six. Um, but the other thing is that I feel like a lot of the dynamics in the strip feel like a really bad middle school or high school, if you're unlucky, Dungeons and Dragons game, where there's a DM with a plot, but when the players start getting stuck on some like dumb little thing, the, you know, it, it's not like there's, it was the 2000s. There wasn't like talk about table community or expectations or the DM being able to be like, look, guys, I'd really like us to get back on the plot. And since we're all friends, that's a reasonable thing for me to expect for us to do. <laughs> Nothing like that. So a lot of it feels like players talking over a situation in detail, shooting down each other's dumb plans to some extent. And also some characters and other characters being completely incompatible. They would never hang out together, but they have to because the players are both there. And you know, maybe attempting to murder each other and the DM is like, ah, oh, no, you can't do that because some reasons. Or like, you know, White Mage is the one who's trying to keep things on track, her, you know, their, her player or whatever. But like, she just can't murder Black Mage because that's being run by a player. And so she has to justify to herself why her character is not destroying this person or that kind <laughs> of thing. Like, there's a lot of that vibe, I feel like. There totally is. There totally is. And it's funny, too, because like when I read this originally back in 2001, 2002, like it didn't it wasn't weird to me that Red Mage as this sort of uh, emblematic symbol of D&D &D, like 
influence on Final Fantasy. It didn't. It wasn't weird to me that that he was there and he was talking about Dungeons and Dragons. It's really weird to me now. Like now, I see them as like completely different media. Like I see Final Fantasy as its entirely own thing. And so I kind of totally forgot about like the crossover back then. Um, because it was all just our own little nerdy world, right? Like, if you know about Final Fantasy, you probably know about D&D, and you probably do both, but... Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was sort of like what I was describing, right? <laughs> yeah. I didn't get even as far as you two. I got into the mid-100s of the strips during this reread, but I have read it all before. Uh, one of the things that did amuse me early on, there, you know, there, there being not a whole lot of laugh-out-loud moments early on, but, like, things that I found amusing was, you know, they have a random encounter with some werewolves, which, again, takes, like, 20 strips. And Red Mage, who has been speaking in Dungeons & Dragons, you know, rules this whole time, suddenly and immediately shifts over to World of Darkness rules and starts talking about how, oh, look, these are werewolves, so they, 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 need, they take aggravated damage from fire or, you know, whatever, but, or silver, but they take normal damage and they can soak that from anything else. And, you know, they can shift into their, like whatever Krinos and, you know, Lupos forms, I don't know. It's just suddenly, I, I got the joke because I was familiar enough with Werewolf the Apocalypse to understand Red Mage. And, you know, that's definitely a lot of the, the humor and the entertainment value of at least early 8-bit theater is like, yes, I understood the references you're making because I'm also a huge nerd. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a guest comic later that's sort of poking fun at, at the, all of the previous 8-bit theater strips. Which now, like at the time when I read that guest comic, I was like, this is pretty disrespectful of the person hosting your comic. But now I'm like, these are all very valid criticisms. And one of the things that, that it says is like, oh, look, it's the 30th Simpsons joke in the first 10 comics. <laughs> I had no idea because I have never like really li like watched The Simpsons, which is kind of weird. But like, I, I didn't know that the the strip was recycling Simpsons jokes like um apparently the um okay yeah I I don't even have it because I I'm just I have no <laughs> I, have, I have no reference for the Simpsons so now I can't even remember which jokes were recycled go ahead <laughs> uh yeah you you should see some of the Simpsons Taran and also now that you mention it I do see a lot of Simpsons humor in the comics DNA Though obviously much less uh, disciplined, I would say, in its execution. Well, it's also definitely got that style of humor, right? Where like, you know, Tard, you were saying like the guest was poking fun at the main comic creator. It's like, well, he pokes fun at himself all the time too. And this is, I think that's kind of the charm is that it can be so self-referential that you really can't like tear it down too much, except for the misogynistic jokes, which were not so oh, great. Yeah. Um, well, I think those taper off, but at the start when, actually maybe we could talk about, um, there's like a, you know, it's mostly the Final Fantasy plot, but we do have an intro where we meet the main characters and they have personalities, I guess. Yeah, the, the intro to Final Fantasy is, you choose your party, you are outside of Corneria, go. Yeah. <laughs> And in this, you've got a black mage and fighter, and they are just named that, which in and of itself is kind of funny, because, like, you know, that would be, you wouldn't have a name in the game, they'd just be your party. But they call themselves, you know, they call each other that. 
uh, running through the woods, uh, no, walking through the woods on a quest for the armor of invisibility, I believe. Invincibility, but yeah. Invincibility, whatever, who cares? It doesn't <laughs> come important. up again until the very end of the comic. <laughs> Actually, Tori, I, I jumped into the middle because I wanted to remind myself what Motoya was like, the witch. And mm-hmm. the joke does come back in the middle where Fighter asks her about the armor of invincibility. And she's like, oh, yeah, it's right over there. But it's so heavy with invincibility that it's hardly usable. You can have it if you want. <laughs> but actually what she has is the armoire of invincibility, which Fighter then spends a lot of time carrying around, you know, the piece of furniture. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, this does do, I mean, it's amazing, though, that, you know, you go that far and then you get a call back, right? Like, it doesn't do it that often, I think. I mean, I didn't get super far in this. I jumped around a lot, but I think those callbacks are funny. <laughs> the longest dangling joke is early on, Black Mage is perusing the strategy guide for Final Fantasy and comments, for White Mages, it'll never work, which mm-hmm. is a reference to the strategy guide suggesting that as a party composition. And then at the very, very, very end of the strip, the final boss is defeated by four white mages. Oh, I didn't even notice that one. That's good. Yeah, like there is a plot that runs through this, and like stuff happens. But um, it o- almost seems like because this was being released over such a long period, it would be weird to kind of like talk about the overarching plot because it's mostly about the jokes. But I didn't want to say that it is funny in the opening the party kind of comes together for reasons and cements their characters. They are introduced to Thief, and Thief, like, basically tricks Fighter into signing a comprehensive contract that signs their lives away to him. And then, I don't know, they hire Red Mage or something, but they also meet White Mage, who ends up being the only reasonable person in the world, apparently. Her and her other group of White Mages, and they are the ones who eventually defeat the Big Bad after a decade of strips. Well, I want to talk about White Mage, and because you mentioned misogyny. And, yeah. Like, there's there's a lot of dumb kind of, like, homophobic or transphobic mm-hmm. or, like, various stuff jokes. And there's also this vibe that, you know, I noticed heavily going through where a lot of the humor, like Tarin said, is someone saying something blisteringly idiotic or incompetent and somebody else, you know being the straight man and reacting to how stupid that is, right? Mm-hmm. And the female characters in the strip are all the straight men. You know, they're, they're all the competent people for the jokes to bounce off of. Because you've got White Mage, um, who is just there to react with horror to, you know, the stupidity or sheer evil of, you know, some of the other characters. You've got Princess Sarah early on and back and forth, and she does that with Garland. You've got Motoya, who is also, you know, uh, like, you know, I mean, she, she's a little bit more entertaining, but she's not one, she's not one of these, like, screamingly incompetent or, like, obsessive characters like a whole lot of other people are. Um, I, I read a little bit of the Elfland part, and you've got this female captain of the guard who is also, like, you know, that same vibe. And it's just, you know, one of those things I feel like with a male writer writing comedy with female characters, where, like he's not inclined to make the female characters the funny ones in their, in in the way that, like, some of the male characters are the comic characters. Yeah. It's kind of an issue, though. Like, it's because it treats the women differently than the male characters. The male characters are the main focus. But 
what does get better and the thing that really put me off of the comic and made me not want to keep reading it is that when Black Mage is first introduced to White Mage, he just keeps hitting on her in the most like awful ways. Then, of course, you know, she kind of smacks him down, but he keeps going, oh, that means she likes me. And it just and that's supposed to be the joke. And it's just uh, it's just I don't even know. I don't really have to describe why that's a bad joke. I hope not. It's like, oh, she must like me because she's hitting me and punching me and telling me to go away that I'm a creep. Like, I'll just keep pursuing her. And he's not supposed to be a good person. But it's yeah. still, it's not a great joke. You know, it's I, just like, eh. I mean, yeah. Like, he, he tries to get what humor he can out of that. There was that early strip also where White Mage is going around, like, bonding with each of the other light warriors briefly. And, like, she gives, you know fighter advice about sword chucks and i forget what she does with thief and like and red mage and then she comes to black mage and she's just like you are an evil monster and i hope you die mm-hmm. and i mean I, th- I think that would have been a funny punchline uh the author continues it a little bit with him with black mage reacting to that and it becomes less funny but yeah let's talk about, let's talk about black mage for a second also yeah yeah, he's, um, he has the most dialogue of anybody, like, or at least he has the most presence, I think. It seems like the story's told more from his point of view than anyone else's, so. Anyway, go on, Taran. <laughs> it's kind of weird, because he's, he's kind of portrayed, or, like, from the perspective of, like, a Michael Bluth, like, he's at the center of all of this chaos all around him. Except that he's also portrayed as, like unlike irreconcilably unforgivably evil like like the most funny way but in a funny way because somehow he wants to destroy everything all the time but he doesn't except sometimes he tries anyway um and i think that that is like part of it's interesting i think the like the author might like excuse black mages misogyny because i was like oh he's he's misogynistic towards white mage but he also kills orphans so like <laughs> you know he's he, he sets fire to an old oh, folks yeah. home and literally kills all of them so like yeah that's definitely worse everybody and that's for that's funny but right? those also weren't funny to me to be honest um i think black mage the humor on black mage gets better but at the start that's mainly it it's like i traumatize children i murder murder children and old people and i'm misogynistic and that's supposed to be funny i don't know what's humorous about that like you know obviously i've it's morally wrong but why is being morally wrong funny <laughs> yeah I feel like Black Mage is part of a tradition of webcomics characters specifically, because I noticed a bunch of, you know, just off the top of my head, there's Bun Bun from Sluggy Freelance, you know, the, the killer rabbit, going into Black Mage. I remember um, the second half of 8-Bit Theater was contemporary contemporaneous with Looking for Group, that, like, World of Warcraft-inspired mm-hmm. one. And I remember... When I, I never read much of that, but when I encountered it, I was like, wait, is this character in Looking for Group just Black Mage? Seems like it. Um, I think it was Richard hmm. in that comic. I remember that yeah. comic. Yeah, the Warlock character. Like, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. It's a good point. And I, I think it was just something in the... Um, I don't know. 
in the internet humor milieu at the time to have it be funny for someone to just be completely horrible and yet escape the consequences of their actions. Yeah, I think it it might be like a derivation and sort of an almost an unwitting like review of the fact that these especially early RPG characters you indiscriminately kill basically anything you come across like there's a random encounter. There's literally nothing you can do other than kill this thing or flee from it. There's no dialogue option. There's nothing. It's just, oh, that's a monster. It's attacking us or we're attacking it for some reason. We kill it. We get experience. Like Red Mage literally talks about getting experience from killing things. Um, it's, I mean, it's, it's played for laughs and like, like the 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 characters in Eight Bit Theater like are almost maybe every other comic one of them attacks the other, like Black Mage. As far as I know, unless there's some exploit in Final Fantasy with with knives or daggers that I'm not aware of, Black Mage uses a dagger to like try to kill his teammates constantly in this comic yeah even though it seems like he shouldn't be good at it at but, all he's not in the comic either but that's actually funny um like it's not unfunny that black mage is a bad person it's sort of like seinfeld right you see these bad characters make mistakes and receive basically their punishment for it and that's part of the humor of seinfeld and so when black mage like tries to stab someone and it doesn't work out because he's stabbing like fighter right and fighter is just way more physically strong there's humor to that because you're like, oh, yeah, he did the bad thing. He, you know, it's a bit simple, but it's like uh, that's a different sort of humor than I just burned down an old folks home. Ha ha. It's just like I, I, I don't get how the latter is humorous. I do sort of get how the former is. And I feel like maybe it's just kind of conflated all of the like I'm a like making fun of the bad guy sort of humor styles together in a way that I don't personally like quite as much like i like moments of it for sure some of them are hilarious like uh when he takes off his hat and he has to hide his head because he's like some sort of cthulian horror underneath like eldritch horror monster i don't even know and he traumatizes a kid who happens to see him and the kid shows back up later i think to get revenge like that was actually funny yeah that's kind of the cornerstone of the whole 8-bit theater plot really yeah anyway yeah, that's an ongoing joke. Um, yeah, it's 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 interesting too because the author, like Mr. Clevinger, Clevinger, um, he references it quite often. Like he, it's he clearly references the horror of these characters, either their actions or specifically Black Mage's personality. There's there's one point near the point where I stopped at 500 where um, Black Mage like writes a, a letter to White Mage. Um, that's really like kind of like a like a normal person, like a sensitive person, um, writing a letter to a friend, like consoling them when they're grieving a loss because another character had just died and she was close to that character. And she reads it and she's like, oh, wow, maybe I misjudged Black Mage. And then the next, like, the next comic, the next day, 
Um, <laughs> White Mage talks to him about it, and then Black Mage brings up that in order to get certain powers, he sacrificed nine orphans. And then he like goes through a laundry list of all of the terrible things that he's done. And then White Mage is like, like thinking that she she misjudged this person and then finds out that he's done all these terrible things and she's like even though i believe in the good uh, that there's good in everyone and there's even good in you can't can't quite get behind you but that's it it's kind of weird like hmm. she's that still like even she, sound like there was a joke in there <laughs> she fully believes that like the strip that he is the ch- one of the chosen four people to like save the planet and it, it does make me wonder like if you were if you fully believed that a serial killer like indiscriminate terrible person was destined to save the entire planet how like how would i go about dealing with that person Okay, but that's part of the joke, right? And as you mentioned, all the women are the straight men, straight women. Wait, (laughs) whatever. (laughs) So that that is because actually, especially with White Mage, she's a super relatable human for a normal human. So it makes Mm -hmm. you as the reader put yourself in her shoes and look at these characters as if they were real people and go, why am I laughing about these bad things they've done? Or why do I care about these characters? Like it's it sort of like a recentering um, device, which I feel like in a way it's effective. It's just also at the same time for me, it makes me think, why did Clevenger choose to write about these bad people? It's in general hard to talk about humor though, right? It is. And even even early on, the author's throwing enough at the wall that some of the stuff is like it's definitely entertaining um at a low level at least and you know jumping on forward to where he's kind of perfected the style i think it i think part of the humor is also just that the world is the world that these characters inhabit is itself completely absurd and dumb and like like practically everything is you know bizarre and jokey anyway so it's not like oh these orphans who have like you know a a very serious existence right it's like everyone is to some extent dumb or incompetent that they encounter even like i mentioned that like um that elven captain of the guard is one of the female characters who is supposed to you know in general one of the more competent characters one of the way one of the common jokes besides somebody shooting down someone else's idiotic plan is a character executing a completely idiotic plan or most often a completely hopeless bluff like just lying straight face about something that's obviously not true and it happening to work and the other person's just like yeah okay you know that i accept that and you know even that happens to this elven captain of the guard whose name i forget at one point she just like accepts this bald-faced lie um in front of her even though she has right to be suspicious and is suspicious and like that's part of the humor it's just that their their universe is itself completely warped and you know and silly yeah like um yeah moving away like the violence i think all of the violence jokes are the worst jokes in this 
and like all of like is it's, it's kind of ironic maybe not quite the worst because some like for the first hundred episodes most of the humor is like fighter licking swords and saying it over and over again and everyone like else saying oh that's stupid and everyone reading it being like why why are we reading this again um but like when the author does like really inventively stupid things like with the characters it's it's like like all of the kings in in this like all all of the leaders are like almost worth reading it for in my opinion like king steve is the is the king of corneria and like it's kind of hard to describe why i find him like legitimately really funny but it's like it's a kind of stupidity that i just wouldn't think of um because it's it's like folds in backwards on itself our producer dom just shared a comment relating to the whole like black mage being a you know horrible murderer evil person thing uh saying that like she understands in in art that often a period of art such as like the early web comics period is in reaction to kind of the period of art that came before it. And in this case, the predecessors of webcomics really were newspaper comics, right? That's what these right. things were being modeled on with like a serialized one strip per day, even if, you know, even if something like 8-Bit Theater looks nothing like your traditional four panel or whatever little comic strip. Sure. And so part of the humor of having horrible, evil characters is just that they are in a comic which is a medium where you're used to having, like, Dagwood. Or, you know, at worst, <laughs> Lucy Van yeah. Pelt. And not, like, <laughs> Black Mage. Right. And um, I do remember, and I've been trying to put this together in my head, right, whether I thought this was funny at the time because I was just a teenager, you know, my humor wasn't sophisticated, or if it was, like I think we mentioned before, just a part of the pastiche of the era. And I think it really is. It's like, you start out with these characters and that is a really good point that Dom made. And that's part of the humor. But as you continue, you become invested in the characters, despite them being bad people, because this is a long running story format. I mean, Rick and Morty, like, which is a cartoon I love um, and is super, super popular today. It also has characters which like randomly annihilate civilizations. I think that's, I think maybe this kind of like webcomic kind of heralded this like the dark cartoon era, um, which is now kind of restricted to more adult cartoons as far as I can tell. That's a whole conversation, like how, how yeah. cartoons have evolved. I don't, <laughs> I don't know as much about how webcomics have evolved, but I definitely see some, maybe some influences of, of that like motivation to like shock people out of their their complacency reading newspaper comics in the comfort of their homes <laughs> yeah but if it's just reactionary then it's not as interesting um i do think that there's a little bit more here like maybe the characters are predicated on a reactionary standpoint but i think they actually have moments of really interesting and endearing personality qualities which makes it sort of fascinating <laughs> I want to talk about the art a little bit because part of what I find endearing, for example, about Black Mage is that he's very cute. 
just his character design. Like, I love his little gesticulations with his tiny little arms that are, like, poked out, you know, mm-hmm. in front of him, like all the characters. And I like how much expression the author is able to get in, like, his little beady glowing eyes, even though he, like, has no face. And in general, I think the art style is very, like, um, I don't know, kind of cute and enjoyable. And even even though I don't think the other characters somehow are quite as expressive or endearing as Black Mage's design specifically, um, it's still kind of, it's all a very, like, kind of bright, colorful blocks of color sort of aesthetic because it's sprites but it's also sprites blown up way bigger than they should be on the screen of your tv playing on your nintendo right yeah i i find it very pleasing to look at too like after 500 pages i'm not any less in like interested in the art style i'm not tired of the fact that these are just reused sprites which is kind of surprising to me if I think about it enough, but like there is a lot of, somehow a lot of expression. I do have a question for y'all. There's like a white pixel in White Mage's face, like right below whatever eye is like like closer to first person, like depending on which direction she's looking. And I, I was never, in my mind, I was never able to, like, interpret that as anything other than, like, some sort of weird, like, blush or, like, maybe a teardrop. Uh, like, it didn't bother me this time, but I remember as, like, a, a teenager being like, I don't understand why there's that white pixel there. And similarly, it looked like Black Belt had a beard with the, with the black line, like outline of his face compared to the brown of of his hair you know like that kind of thing which i this is not like there's no way to critique this i'm just honestly curious how you guys interpreted those things the um the small child because they happen to be on this page that um black mage traumatizes as we mentioned also has that same white pixel and i wonder if this is just maybe they're this is such a limited number of pixels, y'all. Like, this is a kind of a standard character design that was drawn out. And I agree, I think you could make that pixel flesh tone and it would be better. But because maybe the surrounding area of, like, their clothing is white, the pixel is just, like, a pixel bleed. And it was just, like, either make that white or black. I don't know. I think you could have made it flesh tone. But I, I don't know the answer to that. Well, I mean, I can confirm that's not something that the author decided. Um, that's hmm. just from the sprite. Um, white Mage uses the sprite for the White Mage from Final Fantasy three rather than from Final Fantasy one, and it's just got that uh, little white pixel. I don't know. Huh. Interesting. But, but, but um, you're right. It it seems like it should be flesh toned. It really does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there are some some points earlier on where Thief when. Thief is facing like a, a non-standard direction, has a has a like a pale skin tone rather than the sort of yellow green skin tone. Um, I wonder if that was just a mistake by by the author of the comic, because I think he is slightly recolored from whatever sprite he's based on. Mm. Yeah, this is still I'm sure this information is available, but this is still within my curiosity of where did these sprites come from? The Clevenger draw them out based on the originals or pull them from somewhere. I just don't know. 
I'm looking at the little kid. Sorry, the little kid sprite is the Onion Knight from Final Fantasy III. Mm-hmm. And in Final Fantasy III, your characters were supposed to be little kids, I think. Um, oh. And Tarn, you might have been right about the blush, because that like, I'm looking at the Onion Knight, it's got one on each cheek. It might just be supposed to be like oh. a little, you know, thing marking the cheeks like you might see on cute Japanese little characters, you know. The, the kawaii character design aesthetic. That might literally be what it's supposed uh, to be. But it's a single pixel, like... <laughs> Would anyone even notice such things? I guess sprite design is not my area of expertise, but... Well, they were thinking, look, when people reuse this for later works of transformative fiction, it's, you know, going to be part of the... the mm. effect. <laughs> well, so I know I don't know about any of that. I know that uh, the author posted these twice a week, I think Tuesday and Saturday, which was really strange timing compared to every of the like five other web comics that I read at the time. Um, but it seems like a lot of work, like to like, maybe, maybe it isn't cause he reuses the same like panels, basically most of like a lot of the time, but these are full pages, right? Like it seems like that would have been a lot of work for someone who, as far as I can tell, doesn't draw, but maybe I'm wrong. I mean, I do want to comment that the 8-Bit Theater site is still up. You don't have to, like, do Wayback Machine. You can archive it. One of the tabs at the top, along with latest, you know, which is the last strip, archive, that kind of thing, has FAQ. If you click on FAQ, there's one question there, which is, should I make a sprite comic? And the answer is no. (laughs) There's just one question? Yes, that's that's the entire FAQ section. (laughs) That's actually pretty funny. Um, I also, I was doing some research and preparation just to kind of answer that question. And there is an interview from 2009 where Clevenger said that he typically spent Monday, Wednesday, and Friday mornings writing the comic, then spent the afternoons and evening putting the comic together. Now that's a lot of time to spend (laughs) on a project you are not being paid to do. It sort of implies that, I mean, maybe he took a break in the middle of the day but really, it sort of implies he spent like all of Monday, Wednesday, and Friday just working on this comic, which is nuts, you know, if you have a full-time job, right? I have no idea if he had a full-time job. I don't know. But but, whatever, yeah. whatever he did, it, it, it worked out, because as far mm-hmm. as I know, he worked not only on Atomic Robo, but I heard he worked on a couple of like more syndicated major projects, like as a guest writer or something. Yes. But I think that might have been all post-8-Bit Theater. Mm-hmm. I don't right. remember when he started Atomic Robo or anything, but um, I, I would believe that he wrapped this up first. Hmm. Maybe he's doing on the side. I know he dabbled in a couple other comics while 8-Bit Theater was going on. I remember liking Warbot in Accounting, which is about <laughs> this huge, non-even human-shaped war robot with a desk job that he's completely <laughs> capable of doing because he's a huge war mech that has no hands and only missiles and such. Aw, poor Warbot. Uh, yeah, hey. I mean, that's the vibe of the of the comic for sure. It's this poor <laughs> Warbot. Like, yeah, I remember that. It was really great. <laughs> um, hey, so I have a comment about the plot of this. Um, let's call it a fanfic. Um, yes. So because I never played Final Fantasy when I was originally reading this, I had this strange impression that this was an epilogue because I assumed that rescuing the princess 
is what happened at the end of the game. Apparently, it's what happens at the beginning of the game. Yeah, that um, was a deliberate subversion by Square when they were making Final Fantasy. They oh. had the very first thing you do be to rescue the princess. You know, as opposed to like Dragon Quest or something where, you know, that was that was the real goal. Um, gotcha. You know, when I was when I was rereading this, I wondered based on like realizing that that assumption was silly in my later years, in my old age. I wondered if like if I had known about Final Fantasy, whether or not I would have found it like way more funny, like because I'd be like, oh, I see what he's doing there. He's explaining this bridge being built yeah. for yeah. for this reason, you know, like instead of like just seeming to be totally random, which it seemed to me at the time. There are some jokes like that, and I think that's a transition to something else that I want to talk about, um, which is kind of plot related. Over the course of this fanfic, we have our four main characters who are considered the Light Warriors, right? Um, mm -hmm. Who are supposed to save the world. And we get not one, not two, but three kind of Erdsatz Light Warrior equivalent groups of four people uh, that are developed throughout the course of the fanfic that are all mm -hmm. reoccurring. And it's just, you know, as someone who once took a class in college titled The Double in Literature, I just kind of wanted to talk about that a little bit. because. We've got, for one thing, the Dark Warriors, who are mostly antagonists from the game. Um, Garland from early on, BK the pirate, the pirate leader, um, the, the elf prince, the evil elf prince, and one that the author had to basically make up, who's the, the son of one of the fiends. And they end up banding together to oppose the Light Warriors. And the joke there is basically that they're, if anything, more incompetent and also no more evil than the actual group that we're following. <laughs> Right. Yeah, that that turns out kind of funny at the end because they end up getting the credit for defeating the evil that um, the uh, four white mages actually defeated. <laughs> but it's only to spite the light warriors, essentially, just because they're saying, we're going to take credit for what you guys did. And then the white mages are like, how can we not have that happen? Oh, we'll make the, we'll get the dark warriors to take credit for it, which I thought was actually a really funny ending. Yeah, it's pretty funny. I mean, I, I really liked it. Like I, I, especially the dark warriors, like for some reason I was really attached to their dynamic, like probably more than the light warriors. It took them a while to get formed. But like generally, I felt that they were each more interesting characters. Like Garland, I was a fan fan of from a very early like like he was easily my favorite character as soon as he was introduced until King Steve, of course. Um, but like, like I I don't know. W would you Amato? Which one was your favorite? Let me just ask you that. What of the Dark Warriors? No, I mean of the groups. I find the conceit of the real Light Warriors fundamentally hilarious. And that's because uh, of it being such a Final Fantasy reference. Because, like, really early on, you know, the, the main characters get hailed as the Light Warriors because they show up for the job. And they're like, oh, no, the Light Warriors are supposed to have these orbs. Like, you know, and, and you don't have the orbs, so you can't be the Light Warriors. And, you know, over the course of one strip, I think Black Major someone runs off and gets some light bulbs, and it's just like, oh yeah, these these are the orbs mm -hmm. that we're talking about. They're still warm with destiny. Yep. And they're like, okay, you're the light warriors. And then, you know, later on, you cut back to Corneria, and 
the class changed versions of the starting party um, in Final Fantasy. Because like later on in the game, you can upgrade your classes and you get all like big and buff and you look more serious and competent. And so right. you know, just by using those sprites, the author is indicating these are actual competent, legitimate heroes who know what they're doing. Um, they show up and they're actually the light warriors, but they're turned away because we already have some. And you keep like right. flashing. And that's one of those jokes that's only funny if you're familiar with the game, really. Otherwise, it's just like, okay, whatever. It's kind um, of funny because the king is painted as so incompetent that not only does he buy that the light bulbs that were stolen from the castle are the orbs of light from the castle in front of probably many witnesses, I'm assuming, mm -hmm. are the orbs of light. They started to cool down by the time they get in front of the king, and he's like, they're only war, but they're like, oh, that's because their power is diminishing, so we must ask, act quickly, like, buys every excuse. Yeah. But also, he's like, basically his conceit is, I, I don't even need to know who the Light Warriors are, I'll just send everyone, and the ones who aren't worthy will just die. And the queen is like, um, but that's bad. And he's like, oh, oh, really? No, he just, like, can't understand why that's bad, and it's kind of like a little bit of a gag through the next couple pages. It's kind of, like, it's a humor you would assume, but in a way, it's funny. Like, I kind of liked that part. He's like, oh, right, yes, killing people, the bad thing. Of course, honey, I'll remember that next time. And I mean, that's the character that Tarin's saying is his favorite. Yeah. He's, it's really kind of funny, yeah. But when you cut back to the real light warriors over the course of this trip several times, and, you know, usually vaguely unfortunate things are happening to them, and often as, like, the result of what the main party is doing. But it's just, like... Obviously, we're not following these guys because they're actually, like, you know, reasonable heroes who are not driven by obsessive personality quirks and are not actually funny, um, but are also, you know, presumably competent. And like I said, I, I just love that whole concept as a running gag, even though they're not really even characters to speak of. Yeah, no, it's really good, actually. And it's not overused. Like... That's one of one of the strengths of the author, I think, is that like even this whole comic, which he wrote writes over ten years, like we've mentioned, like I I feel like the long term like commitment to certain themes and and like recurring jokes is actually really strong. Um, I think there's a guest comic which like talks about like the real light warriors as if they're like having their own like wacky misadventures because they each have their own like kind of silly personalities. And I remember reading that and being like, this isn't the point at all. Like <laughs> what I want from these like real light warriors is that they are just like, they're trying their absolute hardest to save the world. And the entire world is stupid. So no one is helping them like just save everything. And instead, like, and it's kind of ironic, too, because White Mage and Black Belt are, like, literally using the, the four light warriors as, like, bait for a lot of stuff while they, like, try to fix the world, like, around them. For some reason, I can't remember the exact reasoning, but <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I agree with you, Amadu. Maybe you've changed my mind. Maybe those are my favorite. And they, sh they shouldn't have personality, because they're supposed to be the characters from Final Fantasy who have literally no personality. They never have a line of dialogue, even. You know, you can, you can give them names up to four characters, but, like, that's it. Yeah. Um, 
I remember re when I was reading the comic, I was wondering, so wait, what is the author going to do when the main characters actually do get their class change? And the answer is he uses <laughs> completely different... I mean, he, he modifies their sprites somewhat, I think, based on Final Fantasy III sprites. But they don't get the big buff, like, serious hero-looking sprites that the real white light warriors have. Also, I think their class modification gets wiped away later on as well. I think they keep it. I, I was reading about this. That's what I... Maybe I read it wrong, but... I mean, I could be misremembering. Yeah, it doesn't matter that much. <laughs> it really doesn't. Anyway, there's also a third group that, <laughs> that becomes established. And, I mean, that's probably overkill, because I remember... I don't remember anything about them. I, don't, I didn't get to them in the reread. But that's the group with Ranger, Berserker, Cleric, and Rogue, I think. Technically, Ranger is generic, half-elven, dual-class Ranger Ranger is his name. Right. Mm. He's not called... His name isn't Ranger Ranger. His, his name is generic, half-elven, dual-class Ranger. But he's, he is dual-class Ranger Ranger, so that explains... Oh, right. He dual-class class yeah. from Ranger into Ranger. That is a very good D&D joke. Yeah, I liked it a lot, you know, as a you know, 17-year-old who had just mastered second edition dual class before third edition came out or whatever. I was probably right after, but whatever. Um, that is a joke that, like, no one would get today. Like, <laughs> I, I'm wondering if people can even look up why that's a joke. Oh yeah, this one particular race in one edition of D and D could do something very specific with with their classes, but like if 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 they if they do it, the only reason to do it would be to change from one class into another, and this one has changed from the same class into the same class. Like that's the joke, right? Like, but that's the delightful part, right? <laughs> right. Like, if you know it, then you're like, oh my god, they get me. <laughs> and there are plenty of nerds who know this, because a big thing about being a geek is, like, knowing all these details, right? That's why sure. it's like, it doesn't even have to be a joke. It can just be like, someone sees me. <laughs> they know the thing I know. And that's sort of delightful. So the I will knock you down. Oh, yeah. so good. That line. So <laughs> in the comic... Like there's a there's a page or two of buildup um, for why Garland says I will knock you down, knock you all down, and that's in the game. Is that right? That yeah. that's actually a lot. The original translation of Final Fantasy, you you know you make your way into the temple of the elements and you know fight random encounters. There's, there's nothing else. I mean, you just like you have to build up a bit. You have to grind so you can survive in the Temple of Elements, but you go, you find Garland, he's standing there, you talk to him, and he says, I, Garland, will knock you all down. And then the fight starts. And it's one of those classic translation lines, because, you know, it, it's that good kind of English, where, like, it makes sense, it's grammatically correct, but it's something that no one would ever say in any uh, context, right. ever. <laughs> yeah. And people pick and, up on that and seize on it, yeah. <laughs> Right. And so, um, yeah, there's, well, that's one of the things, okay, that's like a good example about the early, the early 8-bit theater, because like I, like I said, I only got kind of past the Temple of the Elements and a little bit farther, is there's a lot of build-up to this, where Princess Sarah, who's coaching, you know, Garland, is trying to get him to deliver a villainous speech, 
but he's being sabotaged by forest imps, which is supposed to be funny because he's obsessed with forest imps, but it turns out it's justified. Like, they actually are out to get him. He's not paranoid. And they switch <laughs> his speech, and so at the end, he has to make something up, and the best he can come up with is de- declaring very loudly and dramatically, I, Garland, will knock you all down. And that's Burp. pretty funny. It's funny because of the forest imps, it's funny because of the line and the callback, and then it becomes immediately not funny because all the characters break down laughing about how dumb that line is. And it's like, yeah. that reaction, that reaction is not funny. It's like, I that, understand the line is incredibly stupid. That's the joke. That actually happens more often than it should, right? Like where the characters react to jokes in the universe and it makes it less funny because you just didn't need that. Right. Yeah, it's, it's literally like, <laughs> like everyone hates laugh tracks these days for really good reasons, but it's like as if the characters in a sitcom like every time someone made a joke, everyone laughed, and then they kept going about their their day as if something like funny hadn't happened. But it's also sort of like I think that kind of humor was really common at the time. Like immediately before that, there's like this Garfield style humor where someone would like say like say what say the joke, give the joke, and then Garfield would explain the joke like in the last panel, and you'd be like. Oh, it's funny because Garfield knows the joke in the comic strip about Garfield. That's, or is like explaining it to someone who somehow didn't get the ridiculously easy to understand joke. Whereas this kind of humor is like, you you prepare the audience for the joke, like note to self, blank. And then like, if there's a joke, you, you react to it in universe just like garfield i don't know it's it's pretty bad pretty bad but <laughs> but i will say like he like the author really committed to doing this very particular joke like the entire character as far as i can tell like from the moment garland is introduced like garland is introduced as the worst bad guy ever like he's really really bad at being evil and Princess Sarah, who he has kidnapped, is way better at being evil than he is. And so, like, for the next, like, 30 comic strips or something, she's coaching him on how to be evil. And then, like, at the last moment, like, he loses her help. Like, he loses, like, the script that she gave him. So he, like, has to come up with that on the spot. And, like, he, <laughs> yeah. he panics and he... he screws it up which like explains his line his english line in, in the game and that's i think that's just cool like that's a cool thing to do and then like amato's like you say like <laughs> for all the characters to spend the en- entire next episode laughing about it it's just so ugh, it's aggravating for sure well i mean we could be complaining about things like that and we we might be shortly I want to ask, what else do we want to talk about in about the comic in general? Because we can't we can't go through the story for multiple reasons, including that we didn't read all of it. What else do we want to touch on before we wrap things up? Well, there is maybe Tarn. If there's something else, you can go first. Because what I want to talk about is the ending and the epilogue. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I mean that goes into 2010, so it's no longer retro. But I will oh, allow it. Oh shoot! We've, well. We've done much worse. <laughs> 
I mean, recently we read a new fanfic chapter that was like a week old when we recorded it, so um, I think we can talk about the ending. I don't know. I just think it's interesting. I mean, I didn't get to read through all of it, but it we did kind of talk about how it ends, and it was funny, but it also has a, a, a hand-drawn epilogue in which all the characters sort of like come back and reunite. And I don't know what y'all thought of that. I thought it was kind of like a nice like pin and everything. They kind of bring back all of the things that mattered. And at the very end, it's a Black Mage and Thief, or Black, Black Mage and Fighter, the original two from the opening, are still seeking. They're gone back to seeking the Armor of Invincibility again. <laughs> I thought that was pretty, like, it felt really satisfying, I guess. I think I was a little thrown by the art style, where... The characters, I thought the characters for whom you, I, basically, the fact that the characters had no noses looked very strange to me. I understand they don't <laughs> have the sprites, but it, it makes me think that, like, it's it just in the art style of that last thing. Red mage looks great. Black mage looks great. And they either have a nose covered by a mask or are their entire face is blackness. Mm. And the other characters just, yeah. they're this weird uncanny valley to me. There's also uh, this gag where, um... Who wears the mask over their face? Red Mage is eating through the mask and like somebody <laughs> notices out of the corner of their eye and just like, what? Like a what expression on their face? Anyway, sorry, go on. <laughs> I mean, I, I loathed it. Um, specifically the art style. Like, I don't know how you do over a thousand pages of a comic in a sprite style and then end it without having a sprite comic. It's just so weird to me. What a strange but decision. It wasn't the ending, it was an epilogue. Ah. Well, I, I agree with you, Tarn. I didn't think it was necessary to be hand drawn. It, it it it's a weird jolt for I agree, for that to be the the ending. But I did enjoy it, I did enjoy Red Mage's character design. Yeah, me too, but I, we say it's the epilogue, but it's also like if you go to the end of the comic that's where it is and it's not easy to get to the like it's like easiest to get there you know and there's no other yeah. falling action before it i mean you know the final pixel strip mm. is like the final final kind of climax thing but it would have been a little abrupt to stop it there so yeah i mean it's still still the last part of the story you're right it's and, called the epilogue but it feels more like denouement yeah right, denouement right seems right but yeah i don't i don't have much else um I I know y'all didn't get to this point, but like comic number three hundred and eighty-six is where the lich apparently like kills I guess this is a spoiler. <laughs> the lich kills Black Mage. And like it was literally the first time I became invested in the narrative. Um because fighter, like like goes ballistic on the lich even though like all of the characters have either been like nearly killed for the entire previous section of the comic like fighter like you see flashbacks of fighter meeting black mage for the first time and they're like really ridiculous because black mage is like obviously really like dislikes a fighter and fighter's still optimistic about their burgeoning friendship and whatever but like fighter gets like so pissed off that like I was like whoa I like actually like 
believe in fighters caring about this character, which is the first time I believed in any character caring about any other character. Um, which I found really surprising. Like I remember being like, "Oh wow, I'm surprised! I'm surprised that I care about this happening right now." Um, I don't know if that's something we can discuss, but I did want to point it out. Yeah, well, thank you. I think you're right that it's actually an interest. It's definitely a a main part of the the style and feel of the story that nobody cares about anyone else. They might care about you know their own personal selfish goals, but I mean you know with the exception of fighter, fighter being a and you know like white mage, you've got like the but even even white mage is more about big causes than individuals most of the time. Uh, but fighter is in some ways supposed to be kind of like the grounded most human-like, even though he's also, you know, completely bizarre, sort obsessive. Yeah, talking about these characters like people is kind of funny, because they are <laughs> supposed to be sort of like gag characters, essentially, right? However, it's funny that you all both said that you didn't believe anybody cared about anybody else, because I don't think that's true. If I were to, like, analyze these characters, they say they don't care about each other, they might stab each other, particularly Black Mage might stab one of the stronger fighters, knowing that that person will survive. Like, he will talk the talk, but when it comes down to walking the walk, I mean, like, Black Mage will kill plenty of other people, but not his party members. It has not happened in all of these strips. Like, my point is to say that it's not like they don't treat each other badly, but I really do believe they're sort of like the Seinfeld characters. Like, like they might treat each other like shit sometimes, but they actually and are in some ways invested in the team. Because at any point, anyone could have walked away. Thief wrote up a contract, apparently, but nobody cares about that. Like, occasionally there's conceits, like when Thief is actually the prince of Elfland, and when they're in Elfland, he has his uh, warrior ninjas try to stop them from leaving the party or something. But, like, so there's conceits like that. But there's so many other times they could have just walked away. <laughs> There's no reason they could have stayed together, would have stayed together this long if they didn't care about each other, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely true. It's definitely that kind of, like, oddball, misfit group sort of thing. Just, like, the same reason that their their players are probably sitting at this theoretical tabletop together, despite the fact that clearly they're at each other's throats all the time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah, and the more I think about it, like, you made me think about it, like, a, a little bit, and I feel like their characterizations are actually within certain bounds really consistent over hundreds and hundreds of pages. Like Black Mage is the only one who tries to kill the other party members, so to speak. Thief would easily like let them die. Red Mage is like kind of inscrutable, but generally is like party centric and fighters just super nice to everybody. Right. So like, Though there was this moment where Fighter killed a giant, which made me feel bad. I think I just am a sort of a Fighter fan, I'm kind of realizing in the course of this discussion. <laughs> Anywho. Um, yeah, good point. Well, I think we've run out of anything major we had to say about it, but let's get our final thoughts in. What would be your major complaints about this, you know, with whatever you've reread for this, this exercise? Yeah, I think I think the clear like 
we've, we've mentioned it already, but the, I think the clear major complaint is at least for the first couple hundred pages of the comic, the humor is either in like pretty poor like taste or it's just really, really bad. Like there's a lot of extraordinarily simplistic, like, oh, that person thinks it's funny to kill people. Ha ha. Or that person's really stupid. Ha ha. Like over and over again with the characters actually like saying those things like, oh, that's so stupid. Like, mm -hmm. ha ha. End of, end of joke. Yeah, I mean, I think that's got to be it for, for early 8-bit theater, and I can't speak to the rest of it. It's just that the humor is very, very hit or miss, and it's more miss, and it kind of gets by just by throwing a whole lot of jokes at every single strip, or, you know, or jokes, or at least, like, moments of humor. Yeah, I mean, that's got to be the main complaint, right, that <laughs> anyone would have, because I think all in all, their utilization of sprites was good and kept getting better. I'll talk about that when I praise it. But, uh, you know, I had a really hard time trying to read this from the start. And I mentioned the misogyny towards White Mage. It just goes on. And it would be a little more tolerable if some of the jokes seemed, like, funny to start off with. Instead, they sort of seem mediocre, like the joke you would expect. And I was just sort of like, yep, and that's that. All right. And I, I think Taran's right that it gets better later on, but it's a long time to slog through things that feel somewhat boring, right? Totally. Yeah. And, yeah, but I think we've, uh, we've circled around most of those things already, so why don't we move on to praise? To what do you think this comic has going for it the most? Tori, you were about to talk about the aesthetics again, right? Mm hmm Well, yeah, actually. And especially, I've been sort of, I don't know if I mentioned this. I did not get very far in reading this. And then I basically read a little bit in the middle and read a little bit at the end. So I may not be the most qualified to talk about all of it, but I did know even from the start, they were doing sort of unique things using these sprites. Like there's seen uh, one of the early first pages of uh, fighter picks up black mage and runs away with holding him. So they turn the sprite sideways, and they make it like he's tucked under the arm, and then they put this like big long red speed line to show that fighter's running. And I gotta say, I thought it was clever. However, it did not read very well to me at first. I was like, what's happening? There's another scene where like Black Mage is on one side of a tree and um, Thief is on the other side, and I couldn't tell at first what was supposed to be what. Eventually I worked it out. But by the end, they're using, you know, these photographs. I, I actually not even that far from then. They're kind of creating their own backgrounds in these pixelated images. They're using, oh, he's using, I guess it's one person, he's using um, these blurred out photographs to create backgrounds, which is really clever because it blends into the pixelated image. Um, and he's also drawing on images from other things and inserting the sprites over it, like hand-drawn art as well. And I think he does a really good job of blending all of these styles together. And I just think it's fairly impressive considering what a limited medium it is. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. I think once the, the artist hits his stride, it starts looking really good. And, and even early on, I was kind of impressed with how much he was playing with the sprites just for mm -hmm. like little motions and poses and variations yeah. and that sort of thing. And I think most generally... Um, I, I do think the author was really creative with 
what he was doing in the execution of it. Like I said, there were sprite comics before this, but he kind of committed really early on to this kind of full-page spread with lots of panels, lots of dialogue, lots of sprites, lots of things going on. This, like, using these sprites for such a conversation-dense style of humor combined with the also really early decided on commitment to, like, anchoring it to this weird, bizarre, like, twist of the Final Fantasy original plot, such that it really, really is a, you know, it's a retelling of the original Final Fantasy game, just, you know, with every single detail changed and expanded on a hundred times. And I feel like, so I feel like fairly early on, he, he kind of has this creative vision that coheses a little bit more than I would expect. And, you know, he might not be executing it very well early on, but I think there's a reason that this was so striking when it came out, because there wasn't anything else that really, you know, that it had such a strong identity as a webcomic. I totally, I totally agree. Like, I think commitment to the comic is, is, is really how I would describe it myself, too. Um, because, like... Some a quibble I still have with it. I'm probably gonna keep reading it, which is kind of surprising to myself. But like the the word bubbles are not that intuitive. Like often you're supposed to read down to up or right to left, which is like jarring when I've like read a lot of uh, professional comics. Um, but they've gotten better over time. Everything's gotten better over time. Like the humor's gotten better. Um, like my favorite lines are are in like in the last hundred comics I've read. Um, there are there are a couple like there are a couple good ones early on too. Um, I'm just I'm like in retrospect I'm impressed. I mean it did take him years, right? So maybe I shouldn't be so surprised. But I think what's so impressive about it is I think that like someone who's improving that much with a comic wouldn't wouldn't like cleave to the characterizations as much like he would some like i for example would probably either start a new project or change like change the characters more over time so they didn't have to like have black mage be this sadistic like main like protagonist i guess you know like but instead he like finds ways around that stuff you know and and like i'm just I'm pretty impressed by that. Like, definitely seems to have a certain discipline that I wouldn't have in, in that position, I think. There's definitely something to be said for the dedication to the project. Uh, for sure. <laughs> and I'd also just like to throw out as something that I appreciate about the comic. I appreciate that it gave Brian Clevenger enough exposure and writing experience to write Atomic Robo. Because I think Atomic Robo is also, like very entertaining and well executed and it's good that it exists and i feel like he also kind of went into that with a bit of a um more firm idea of what he wanted to do with it than i sometimes expect from people who are like publishing their first comic or whatever oh um also the imps i think the imps are are the best part as well um i think the way um, that he handles the imps is really good Sorry, what page do the imps appear on so I can read that part? Um, I have one 
128 as sort of the shining moment where I'm like, okay, the imps are like awesome, but I don't, I'm not sure that's where they're introduced. That's okay. I just wanted to look at it a little bit more because what I have learned is that I did not like the start of this comic and I should have just started in the middle because mm. I did mm. like it a lot better after that. So It's probably <laughs> fair. That's probably decent advice to anyone who's going to go back and read it. Right. But for now, I think we should wrap up our discussion. Tarin, thanks for coming on and trying to talk about a rather difficult topic, which is humor and an incredibly long comic combined. <laughs> An incredibly long humor comic. Well, sure. Thanks for the invite, as usual. My yeah. usual bi-yearly invite. <laughs> <laughs> we have that on a clock. I haven't been keeping track. Do you just like ask us to come on the podcast twice a year? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> Sorry, I meant my um, bi-yearly invite acceptance. Like my invite, your acceptance. Yeah, self-invite. Okay. This time Taran actually did self-invite himself. It's not the but first time. We always appreciate it. You're one of our best guests. Oh, that's Entirely untrue, but I appreciate the lip service. Well, you're a guest who will read the most of the thing that I myself assigned, um, like much more than I read. So that's a very valuable service in itself. Sweet. True. <laughs> yeah, I'm the expert. I'm the expert witness. Oh, one other thing I would like to say as a prospective lawyer is that the thief contract makes no sense. Also, Vetoes don't work where one person vetoes and that like removes one like vote. No, it's like <laughs> vetoing is the whole thing. Everybody contracts need consideration. Look that up. The more you know. Yeah, no, it's actually very important because I think if Black Mage and Fighter had had some sort of legal advice beforehand, they never would have got along with everything Thief did. So just saying. Right. Know your stuff. Yeah. Thanks, Tarin. <laughs> sure thing. I mean, I'm not, I'm no one's lawyer. I got to make that super clear. I am not legal, re legally representing anyone. I cannot be sued for malpractice ever. Ever? <laughs> that's just. I'm never legally representing anyone. That's a binding contract. No one. Yeah. Yeah. If you're listening to this. You've just agreed. <laughs> that's a thief sale contract right there. That's right. All right. <laughs> well, this was episode 121 of Retro Fanfic Retrospective, 8-Bit Theater by Brian Clevenger, based on the original game Final Fantasy. You can find it on the original website on which it was hosted, which was nuclearpower.com, where there's a K in nuclear instead of a C, and U-K-L-E-A-R, power.com altogether. Uh, it's still there. It's all there. The archive, you know, is not the easiest to navigate, but you can... Navigate by the date that something was published. The intro song to the podcast is The Weekly Fair, off of the album Popey's Incredible Adventure by Komiku. The outro song is Run Against the Universe from the same album. You can find that album and other works by Komiku at loyaltyfreakmusic.com. Our podcast is edited by Dom Davis, who could not resist chiming in herself to comment on one of the things this time, um, which is unusual. I think usually... She can resist talking about fan fiction, which is why she's no longer one of the main co-hosts. But anyway, we appreciated the, con the 
the extra thought. You can find our website at retrofanficretrospective.podbean.com or bit.ly slash retrofanfic. And if you have questions, comments, or thoughts about the episode, you can contact us on Twitter at Retrofanfic, Facebook at Retrofanfic, send us an email at retrofanficretrospective at gmail.com. You can leave comments or reviews on whatever podcast service you used to listen to. Tori, it looks like you just added a comment to one of our old episodes the other day. I did. I got a <laughs> notification. Uh, I was listening to uh, Care Bears Rise and Fall, which is a really good episode, except I got really tired at the end of the discussion. I could tell. <laughs> mm. You know, you mentioned strawberry shortcake. It came up in conversation the other mm-hmm. day. And I was immediately like, you know what? I should look for a strawberry shortcake fanfic, but I couldn't find any, you know, well-regarded old ones. Travesty. That was part of the reason I wanted to read the care, listen to the Care Bears one again, is because I found the Instagram of the artist who created Care Bears and Strawberry Shortcake. So, and she's amazing, apparently. Uh, yes. <laughs> if I had it pulled up, I plug it. But all right, I'm Amato. I'm Tori. I'm Taran. We're just three Earth life forms trying our best to run this podcast when, in fact, there are another group of much more qualified podcasters out there who are supposed to be running it. (laughs) Until next time, take care.